And so I look at it this way, and I'll just kind of lay this out because I think this context helps people understand. We have a health crisis, either real or contrived, and it has resulted in an economic heart attack, an economic crisis, because we have ceased commerce. Mm -hmm. Money is not flowing. Currency is not flowing. I call it a heart attack. When your heart stops beating, blood stops flowing. Your network is your net worth. Come listen to some of the most successful people I know. Share invaluable knowledge, stories, and advice in real estate, business, and beyond. This is Weiss Advice. Whether you want to take your business or personal life to the next level, look no further. Welcome back to Weiss Advice. Thank you so much. I'm Yona Weiss, your host. Today, it gives me great pleasure to be with one of the most famous real estate podcasters, if not the most famous, come on, okay, it's true. The Real Estate Guys radio show. If you guys haven't heard of these guys, then you probably have never listened to a real estate podcast before. That's probably the truth. Now, Russell Gray, it gives me great pleasure to, to be finally speaking with you. So thank you for coming on the show. Happy to be here. Excited about it. And congratulations on uh, launching your podcast. It's fun. Yeah, it certainly is. One thing about Russell, I mean, you guys have been in the business. Pod, you know, podcasts are now like the hot thing. Everyone and their mother has to have a podcast about who knows what. And especially in real estate, everyone, you, you blink an eye and there's another 10 real estate podcasts that are popping up. But you guys have been in the business for decades, for, since 2004, I believe, was when you started. Well, that's when I started. Robert uh, Helms, the host of the show and the founder of the show, actually started the radio show because that's really what we are. Right. We're a radio program. I uh, started a radio talk show on real estate in 1997. And that's how I met him. I heard him on the radio and I went to one of his seminars like a lot of people do. And I realized that uh, he was a guy that had a lot of talent and a lot of potential and was doing a lot of things and a lot of great relationships. I felt like there were some things he could use some help with that I was good at. And I had a fledgling mortgage company. And I said, well, I think I could probably find a way to align with this guy. So we started a kind of a cooperative marketing alliance where uh, he and his people and me and my people would get together and we would do seminars together. And there was another co-host, the original co-founder of the Real Estate Guys radio show. And uh, so Robert and I, I wasn't on the radio with Robert and I wasn't a real estate guy until 2004. So it was seven years into the show before I showed up. Uh, but then one day the, uh, the original co-founder decided to leave and uh, I got involved. And because Robert and I'd been speaking together for the last couple of years in teaching, uh, mm -hmm. we really gelled. And so it kind of took off. And then from 2004, 2005, we wrote the book in 2005. We got our TV show shortly after that. Uh, we started podcasting actually in 2009. So we were doing the radio show for five years mm -hmm. before we started podcasting. And I'll be honest, you know, I didn't even know what a podcast was when the producer came and suggested that we try it. And so that's how we get started. And that's awesome. And have you guys you know, obviously you scaled that to a great extent, you know, from being a radio show to a podcast and now being probably the longest running, you know, real estate podcast uh, out there. What, how did that happen? How did you, were able to scale that? Well, I mean, there's two parts of it. One is you, you'll learn in life that, you know, half the game is just showing up. Right. We, we joke all the time that Robert and I are just two guys, too dumb to quit. We just keep going. <laughs> so we just don't give up. 
And so that's number one. You beat half the people in the world just by showing up every day and just going to work. And so Robert and I are both workers. We just show up every day and do our thing. So we're very consistent. I think the second thing is you really have to care about what you're doing mm -hmm. and you have to be authentic. And, you know, we, we try to be that way. I mean, you know, yeah, we get a little hypey and we're high energy and we try to be entertaining. But at the end of the day, we talk about what's on our mind. We say what we think. We're not trying to convince people, um, but we are trying to provoke ideas and thoughts and introduce people and personalities. And, you know, when you get past that part of it and you're just showing up every day and you're trying to be authentic, as authentic as you can be, uh, then, then you kind of enter the top 10%. In, and you become part of that group. And then for us, it really became a matter of resigning from being the smart guys and going out and trying to get as many smart people as we could uh, to be able to spend time, quality time with us and really get to know them. And so over, mm -hmm. over time, our claim to fame became uh, our relationships and, and the depth of the quality and the quantity of relationships we have with, with thought leaders. And so that, that's how we got where we're at. You know, there's a lot of mechanics to the scaling, but ultimately when it comes to media, you just got to put something out there that is uh, unique, appealing, relevant, consistent. And uh, well, I think those four things, right? Especially relevant, it's got to be relevant. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, unique, obviously, what, what sets you apart is being unique. Uh, because when you're doing the same exact thing as everyone else, and that's part of the reason why I started this, as I told you offline, is because I don't want to be exactly like everyone else because you know, no one's going to find you that way. But being relevant, I think, is really important. So on that note, I just want to you know, kind of maybe touch on, on something because your expertise is obviously just being aware of, of what's going on in the real estate world. I mean, I would say if any expertise there is, you know, that would be it. You, know, you're, you have such a deep uh, entrenched and have been in the business for so many years. Uh, that you kind of have a, a tap on the, on the pulse of what's going on in the markets right now. What do you, what do you think is, is happening? Uh, you know, everyone's kind of scared. They don't know what to do, especially let's focus maybe on, on multifamily specifically. Yeah, well, so uh, I'm not really a niche expert. The things that we do in our private investing are really off the beaten path. So we don't talk a lot about that on the air because I don't think most people right. would really relate to it or mm -hmm. be interested but I, th I think that the idea of learning to pay attention to the big picture was born of pain. <laughs> you know, we were uh, doing all kinds of different things pre-2008. So in, in our evolution, there was, you know, before 2008, and then there was post-2008. And before 2008, we were involved in uh, new construction. We mm -hmm. were involved in land development. We were doing international. We were doing multifamily, single-family uh, just all kinds of stuff. We we're all over the place. We were syndicating. So that gave us the, the money to be able to go do lots and lots of different things. And that was fun. Uh, once we discovered that you didn't have to be limited by how much money you had or how much purchasing power you brought to the table, anything that you lacked, whether it was knowledge, credit, a balance sheet, uh, investment capital, whatever it was, you could go get if the deal made sense, right. you just put the pieces together. So mm -hmm. Post-2008, we decided to focus on that because we thought there'd be a big opportunity. And then I think the, the other part of it is, is just recognizing that real estate investors, generally speaking, are kind of myopic. They live in a bubble in an echo chamber. And so that's because most of what's going on in mainstream financial media just doesn't relate 
I mean, it, the, the people who are on mainstream TV are, are usually talking about a strategy that's buy low, sell high. Mm -hmm. And I know that people who flip real estate think that way, but, but true real estate investing is about acquiring streams of income and really what I call acquiring the, the efforts of others. Mm -hmm. So if I, if I have a property like a multifamily property and I've got 200 tenants, then every day 200 people go to work for somebody else and earn a paycheck doing real work and send me about 25 or 30% of their income to live in the property. And so now I've harnessed their, their efforts. If I were to make a loan against that apartment building, if I didn't wanna be on the equity side, then every day uh, somebody, an owner and a property manager is managing the, the property and recruiting those 200 people to come work in it. And they're taking a portion of the 25% or 30% of their labor, filtering it through their operating expenses and getting to their NOI right. and then paying me a chunk of that in the form of interest on the loan that I made. But at the end of the day, I've acquired streams of income, which is really harnessing the efforts of others. The people on mainstream financial TV are teaching you how to buy low, sell high. And I know that people like flip this house and the idea that I'm going to go from cash to asset to cash. The problem with that is that at the round trip, you don't end up with an asset. All you end up with is cash. Right. And right now they're printing cash with abandon and the value is probably going to go down. So it's not really cash that you want. It's assets. Mm -hmm. And so real, real estate collecting, real estate investing is, is, is arguably a better way to go. Sure. So I started paying attention to the big picture. Right now, there's a lot of big picture stuff that is arguably worse than what happened in 2008. And I'm happy that I went through 2008 because I feel better prepared for it. But I think there's a lot of people out there who started investing after 2008 who aren't. And th that's kind of the things that I like to talk about right now. <laughs> so what, I mean, for you, someone that's been through that, and, and like you said, you have, you have the media company, right? You guys are running this show. You're doing the educational programs. And you also have your investment wing, which you guys are doing investing. What's the biggest challenge for you right now in this uh, current, the current time? Oh, well, there's always a big list, you know, uh, <laughs> unique to the time. I, I, I think the biggest thing is just the uncertainty and the immobility. So, you know, we have done a lot of business. We're old school. We like to get together with people in live meetings, live events. Um, you know, for 17 years, 18 years now, we've done our annual investor summit. For the first 17 years, it was our annual investor summit at sea. We would all get on a cruise ship. We would spend a week together. Some of our deepest and best relationships were formed there with a lot of these big name folks that we're friends with. Uh, the last, this last year, just this last month, uh, we did our 18th annual investor summit, but we did it on screen. Mm. We didn't do it at sea. We had to do it virtually. And it was good and it was great content, but you know, you just don't get the same depth of relationships. Right. And at the end of the day, this is a relationship business. I think all businesses, but this business especially is because the numbers are so big and you have to have people that you know, like, and trust. Mm -hmm. And the way you get to know, like, and trust people is you spend time with them and seeing your face on TV right. is one way to get to know you, hearing your voice on the phone, listening to a podcast or whatever, but, you know, having dinner with you, um, hanging out at the beach together, sitting in a seminar and discussing things that we've learned from a thought leader together, that's hard to replicate in today's environment. 
And I would say that to me is probably the most challenging thing in all aspects of business, whether it's on the investing side uh, or finding deals or raising money or on the, the media side, just you know, continuing to expand the relationships of thought leaders that we know right. uh, or the influence that we have in terms of sharing those thoughts and thought leaders with with people. And, you know, what do, what do you see, you know, going forward in terms of that? Because, I, I mean, obviously everyone relates to that. <laughs> we're, we're all sitting on screens and some people are trying to pivot that. Obviously, you guys did in, to whatever extent you could have. You created this virtual on-screen seminar, as you said. I'm sure you had like the, you know, the virtual backgrounds of the cruise ship and stuff, whatever. But <laughs> even if you didn't, what do, you, do you see this being a viable option going forward? Or is it gonna, are we going to need to get back to that you know, in-person, in-touch thing? Or what do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think... I, I don't think the world is going to revert, snap back to what it was before. Mm -hmm. I think that there is a lot of uncertainty about what's really happening. There's a group of people that believe everything that we're being told, that this thing is more deadly than anything, more viral than anything that uh, you know we're it, it's posing an existential threat to humanity and therefore we have to be willing to sacrifice everything even a return to the dark ages in order to preserve the human race okay that's one extreme there's another extreme that think that the whole thing is completely fabricated it's all a bunch of hoop about you know hiding smoke and mirrors hiding something else that's going on that you know, there's some type of a conspiracy, maybe it's a power grab or a financial collapse or whatever. Probably somewhere in between those two extremes is the truth. But I'm not qualified to know. I don't know. So I don't spend a lot of my life energy trying to figure out what's real and what's not real based on things I don't know or I'm not qualified to, to understand. Right. Uh, I just try to gauge on what is happening in terms of how it could affect me. You know, I know for a fact the global economy shut down. I know that. That was, I've seen that. So it doesn't matter why, whether it was a nefarious motive or whether it was completely 100% legit. It doesn't matter if I agree with it or don't agree with it because, you know, last time I looked, governors and presidents and world health organizations aren't calling Russ Gray to find out what I think. So it doesn't matter what I think. What matters is what they do and how it affects me. And so I look at it this way, and I'll just kind of lay this out because I think this context helps people understand. We have a health crisis, either real or contrived, and it has resulted in an economic heart attack, an economic crisis, because we have ceased commerce. Mm -hmm. Money is not flowing. Currency is not flowing. I call it a heart attack. When your heart stops beating, blood stops flowing. If you think about what currency or blood does in a system, in your biological system, it nourishes individual cells, which, you know, the would be analogous to individual people. You're not getting a paycheck, you're starving, right? And then it nourishes organs or collections, organizations yeah. of people like businesses and, uh, you know, municipalities and even uh, sovereign nations. Uh, and they begin to starve for revenue. And so things can begin to die. Now, if you've ever suffered a heart attack or held your breath or had any type of a life-threatening event, if you can recover quickly enough before there's permanent damage, you can recover. If it lasts for too long, 
uh, cells die, organizations die, and sometimes they don't grow back. They can't be healed. They can't be replaced. If enough damage is done, the entire organ organism dies. So how all this is going to play out, I don't know. I just know that we were in the middle of an economic heart attack and we keep trying to you know, restart the heart and it starts, but oh no, the thing is back. We're going to pull back. So, but that's only phase phase one of the economic consequence. It's really the opening round of a three-phase cascading crisis. Phase two is a financial crisis. And a financial crisis is where credit markets and banking systems collapse because payments aren't being made. Our system is laden with debt. I mean, laden is probably a soft word. Yeah. It is saturated, dripping, oozing, swelling with debt. And our asset prices, the values of our properties, the values of our homes, the values of everything in our system is all based on how much debt is in the system, like a jump house yeah. and the ability to keep the air coming in to keep everything inflated to its current level. Somebody just tripped over the cord and the air is coming out. And the question is, can they plug it back in and pump it back up? And they're trying, but they're having a hard time. So the financial system could collapse. That's what happened in 2008 on a big scale, but relatively small compared to what we're facing. And so, and, and the way that works is you have to understand the, the bond markets. The way the bond markets work is you have bond prices, which are like apartment building prices, mm -hmm. and you have bond yields, which are like capitalization rates or cap rates. And there's an inverse relationship. The higher the price of the building, the lower the cap rate, assuming it's producing the same amount of net operating income. And it's the same with bonds. The higher the price of the bond, the lower the yield on the bond. So when interest rates get lowered, it, it means that the bond value goes up. People say, why would anybody buy a negative yielding bond? Because they're speculating on the bond price that the yield will go even more negative and that the bond price and they can buy low, sell high will go even higher. Well, the inverse is true. What if interest right. rates go up? Mm -hmm. Then bond prices collapse. You say, well, so what? I don't own any bonds. Well, no, you don't. However, the, the entire financial system <laughs> right. does. Yeah. And so when a company like a Goldman Sachs or a Lehman Brothers or a Bear Stearns, which no longer exists, holds or life insurance companies yep. or banks or sovereign nations are holding bonds in their portfolio and those bond yields drop, all of those institutions run the risk of being insolvent. And then you add to that um, rehypothecation, which is just a fancy word for borrowing money against the same asset yeah. multiple times. When that bond value drops, the loan that was placed against it has what's called a margin call which means that now you've got to bring more cash or you have to sell the asset at a loss. And that triggers a cascade of selling. That's what happened in 2008. The subprime mortgage crisis created a drop in bond values of, of subprime mortgage-backed securities, mm -hmm. which created a, a chain reaction through the, the amount of bonds that were leveraged in the system of margin calls. And so people began to have to sell good collateral in order to save bad collateral. And then that made the good collateral bad because when everybody's selling prices drop, your house could be perfectly good, but if everybody on your street goes to sell at the same time, your price is gonna fall. Yeah. 
And if you had a, if everybody who had a mortgage on their houses were forced to restore their loan to value ratio, which is what a margin call would require, it doesn't work that way in real estate. It's foreign to real estate investors, but that's the way the financial markets work. Now, all of a sudden, everybody has to sell or their houses are getting lost in foreclosure. That's a financial crisis. That's a banking crisis. Now, how likely is that to happen? Well, the fact that the immediately when all of this broke, the Federal Reserve dropped its interest rates to zero, printed trillions of dollars, took their balance sheet from 3.7 to over 7 trillion in four months. And the federal government went from trillion dollar deficits to $3 trillion deficits and literally were direct depositing money into people's bank accounts and giving loans to every business that asked for one mm -hmm. uh, simply so they could make their payments tell you that they're taking it very, very seriously. Yeah. And so the next phase in the financial crisis from a financial crisis is a currency crisis because they're printing trillions of dollars to patch up the financial system. And the concern is, is that if the dollar fails, I'm going to guess that 999% of the people who are listening to this right now have no plan for that. They have no idea what it means, what it would mean to them. They have no contingency plan. Yet I could make the argument that we're moving closer to that going from being a possibility to a probability. It's something every investor should be paying attention to right now. Well, Russell, I, I would like to, you know, just drink it from a fire hose. <laughs> I know. But ask, you know, I mean, did it make sense? Yeah, I mean, no, you know, it made a lot of sense. And I love your use of analogies because it, it really just drives the points home very well. There's so much that, you know, any, any investor or any, you know, human for that matter, who, who has any financial literacy whatsoever, you know, needs to understand these things and needs to be as much prepared as possible for them. The problem is we're not prepared and we're, we're kind of at whim to what's happening around us and what the government and you know, those institutional bodies are, are going to kind of dictate to us over the, the course of the next six to 18 months. Who knows how long this, uh, this is going to happen. Any advice on, on that? I mean, without going down the rabbit hole again, you know, for people. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Your average it's a great Joe. question. Well, I, I think the first thing it starts with is, you, you know, you first of all, you, you have to understand ignorance. You can hide from reality, but you can't hide from the consequences of hiding from reality, right? Because reality, which is far off, will become reality in your lap. If, if you know, I was in denial about what was going on in 2007 when the, the warning signs were there. Peter Schiff was warning in 2005, 2006, but I didn't listen. Kiyosaki was warning in 2007 to my face, and I still couldn't listen. I didn't want to. You know, I had a normalcy bias. It screwed up everything I was doing, everything I believed in. I didn't want to hear it, but I needed to. So step number one is you got to open your mind. Step number two is, you, you know, once you've done that, you need to be diligent to, uh, un, to take control of the things you can control mm. and not worry about the things you can't. You, you mentioned that a lot of things are being dictated to us. Yes, they are. So you can't waste time and energy uh, crying or complaining about the way things should be or how unfair it is or how dumb the people in charge are or how much you disagree with somebody that holds an opposing, opposing point of view. None of that matters. Right. I mean, you can do those things in your spare time, 
But, you know, job one is to do a SWOT analysis on your portfolio and say, where, where are my strengths? Where are my weaknesses? Where are my opportunities? Where are my threats? What things can I do to shore up my strengths, mitigate my weaknesses, um, you know, resist uh, or overcome uh, the threats and capitalize on my opportunities. And I think one of the other things is to guard your psychology because as uncertain as it is, and really as frightening as it can be, the flip side of every crisis is opportunity. And you could make the argument that the bigger the crisis, the bigger the opportunity right. for the people who are aware and prepared. Mm -hmm. And so when you resolve to stay aware through education and an open mind and talking to smart people, and then you're diligent to be preparing by doing the things that you actually can do and not fretting about the things you can't do, you're going to be a, probably among the people who fare better right. and maybe even end up emerging better, stronger, and wealthier because you dealt with reality instead of hiding from it. Absolutely. And a lot of you are saying there's tremendous amount of opportunities in this, uh, in this current downturn or maybe future downturn, but the current situation. And I think those people, like you said, it's, it's a, a lot of it is just a matter of perspective and being prepared. So I appreciate you bringing that up and, and kind of solidifying that viewpoint. I want to jump right into the final four over here because we are short on time and I really appreciate you, you joining me and I wish we could go on for hours because we, we certainly could. Um, I, I certainly could. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's one of the things that's great about, you know, we do the summit at sea or we do a live event, we hang out in the bar and we go for hours and it's awesome. So the first question I ask every guest is what's the worst job you ever had? I, I really only had two jobs. And I was done with jobs by the time I was 19. So I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that I've ever done anything I don't like. I didn't last long. I mean, I, I started out my adult uh, working career in a, in a warehouse, and that probably wasn't very much fun. But uh, I don't know that I really had a worse job. They, they all were, I learned something from every sure. one of them. And it was, they were, so, so when you say, sorry, you, I don't have, no, a, that's don't okay. have a great answer. You don't have to, but, but it's interesting to me. You said you've only had two jobs now, obviously for the past 30 years, I don't want to date you over here, but the, you know, what if, what do you consider what, what you are doing? Well, yeah, I mean, people ask me, you know, they, they, what do you do? I, I, I don't know what I do. I mean, I guess I'm semi-retired. I get up every day and I, I do what I want. I mean, if, if the definition of retired is you get to get up every day and do what you want with who you want to do it with, and you have all you need, then I'm retired. Now, um, but what do I work on? I, I work on all kinds of stuff. You know, I work on my health. I work on my education. Uh, I have a mission. My personal mission is to empower individual freedom through financial education for effective action. I've been working on that since I was 35 years old. I'm pushing 60. So everything I do is predicated on learning and then uh, interpreting and trying to make relevant to people uh, good ideas, but ideas that are actionable. Our theme or motto at the Real Estate Guys is education for effective action. If all I do is share with you great ideas, but don't introduce you to people and opportunities for you to act out on those, uh, my experience has been there's a big gap. Yeah between education and action and Wall Street steps in and says, oh, you can sit in your crib with your trading app and you can have investments. But that's, that's really bait to you know, appeal to your laziness and your ignorance right. 
to get you into their casinos where you can get fleeced, my personal opinion. So my mission, part of my mission is I, I despise Wall Street. And I, I want to see Main Street investing in Main Street. I don't see any reason why Main Street should go to work and do real work and earn real money and then send their money to Wall Street or Washington, D.C., let them skim and send back scraps, if that, will taking inordinate risks where they get all the upside yep. and all the downside gets pushed on, pushed on you and your friends and neighbors. So I don't like it at all. Uh, so every day I get up and that's what I work on and I love it. And I just wish that I had more life and more hours in a day, and I don't ever get tired of doing it. Well, many, many more years to you for that, um, with God's help. But the second question we ask is, what is the, a book you've read? I'm sure you've read hundreds, if not thousands, I don't know, that's given you a paradigm shift. So I want, I'm looking for a book that has made you think totally different about something. I, I can tell you the books that have given me the, the, you know, the most, uh, had the most impact on me. Uh, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad is a great book. I can't say that it had a huge impact on me because by the time I read it, I was already there. But it helped me understand where I was at and why I loved it so much. And so it was great and a book I highly recommend. Uh, you know, I read uh, Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. And that was a great book in terms of just understanding one of the most important things is uh, how you approach adversity. He calls it confronting the brutal facts but doing it with confidence that you and your team can find a way to navigate uh, the reality. And it goes back and I find that very apropos for the season uh, in the cycle that we're at right now. Right. So that one's great. Uh, Michael Gerber's book, The E-Myth is a great book yeah. just in terms of understanding the difference, kind of like Kiyosaki, but a little bit different, but the paradigm between being an entrepreneur yeah. and being uh, a, what, uh, what he calls a, um, uh, he calls a tactician, you know, somebody that owns a job versus really building a business and getting things done with other people. Uh, and I think that's a great paradigm shifting book. And probably most recently, the book that I read that made the biggest difference was The One Thing by Gary Keller. And in Gary Keller's book, uh, The One Thing is waking up every day and asking yourself the focusing question, what is the one thing mm. that by so doing will make everything else I need to do easier? E either easier or unnecessary. And it's really a book about leveraging your greatest resource, which is time, but it leverages everything else. And probably at the very, very beginning of my career was a book called How to Master the Art of Selling by Tom Hopkins. Right. It's actually the, the, it was the cassette tapes that I was listening to back in the day. And I recommend that sales training always be done by audio because if you're gonna learn languaging skills, you wanna learn them by ear. Um, but he taught me that, you know, never to see failure as failure, but only as feedback. So it wasn't a state of being or who I was. Right. It was just an experience I was having, like stepping in something a dog left behind and it stinks and it's gross and it's disgusting and you can't wait to get out of it, but you can wash it off and you, it, it doesn't leave a permanent scar mm -hmm. unless you choose to carry it around with you all the time. And I don't know why anybody would. So it's a big answer, uh, but that is my collection of probably most impactful books. Awesome. Well, we're going to add those to the show notes and I hope everyone will take, uh, take you up on, on at least one of those, if not all of them. Third question, what is a skill or talent that you would like to learn? Uh, that's a great question. How to say more in less time. <laughs> I'd like to learn how to be uh, more brief. I think that would be good. I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think that really, you know, when I think about areas that I struggle in, I would say it's, it's, it's being able to stay 
uh, focused for extended periods of time. I'm pretty good for, you know, 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes. At the end of that, I start to unwind and I got to shift gears. And, you know, I don't know that that's normal, but I'm always looking for ways to be more personally productive, even though I'm always looking for ways to be productive through other people. Interesting. Okay. Well, I like that answer. The fourth and final question is, what does success mean to you? And I think you already touched on it, but I'd love to hear it again. Yeah. I mean, the greatest definition of success I've ever, ever heard is making reasonable progress against a worthwhile, identified worthwhile goal. I wake up every day with an intense desire to put my shoulder to, to the boulder. I feel like every day I'm trying to push a rock uphill. And if I relent in any way, it's going to roll me back down that hill. And I'm going to spend a lot of my life treading over the same ground instead of actually advancing. And I, going back to my earlier comment about staying focused and getting something completely over the line is that when, when I'm unable to do that, when I'm in the red zone and I don't cross the goal line, then I end up having to punt or maybe get a small score, a little field goal to use a football analogy. And then I have to go back and I got to march the length of the field again to get another chance. Mm-hmm. And really, if I could just get it over the line. So to me, success is feeling like I'm making progress. Any day that I don't feel like I've made progress towards something that's important to me is a day that I feel was a wasted day and I feel like a loser. Uh, success to me is every day that I've made progress towards a worthwhile goal. Awesome. That's a, a great definition. What uh, I can't take credit for. It's not mine. Well, it's, I it's still good. It. Yeah. Well, that's once you adopt something, it, it becomes yours in, in a lot of ways. So yeah. that's a beautiful definition. And I totally agree with that. And every day is a new opportunities. So there are so many ways we can better ourselves and, and get to the, the greater goal of what we're striving for every day. So uh, how can how many listeners reach out to you or find out more about you, Russell? Well, I mean, we're easy to find, you know, realestateguysradio.com is our website. If you want to get on our newsletter and I, every week I write a newsletter and we rant a little bit. And when you're on that list, you'll also get told we'll release a new podcast. Uh, so that's probably the best way. Just send an email to newsletter at realestateguysradio.com newsletter at realestateguysradio.com. Once you're on the list, uh, you know, you'll get everything that we offer. And if you don't like it, you can just unsubscribe. No harm, no foul. Awesome. Thank you so much. Russell, it's been, it's been a tremendous pleasure getting to spend a little time with you today. So I appreciate you and your time and, and thank you again for coming. No, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. And again, uh, congratulations and keep up the good work. I, I, I will definitely try. Um, and to our listeners, thank you again for, for joining us. And I'm sure you learned a tremendous amount during this, uh, this short episode. Keep coming back. We got lots, lots more like this on the way. And remember, the best advice comes only when you ask. Real quick, I have one question for you. Did you like this episode? If you did, I want to ask you a huge favor. See, the biggest thing that helps this podcast grow and that will spread this message to the whole world is that if you leave a review, a rating, and subscribe to the podcast. What that does is it basically tells the platforms that this podcast is out on is that you like my stuff and I'm doing something right. So take a few seconds out of your day, hit that subscribe button, leave a rating review, I would be extremely grateful. Also, I want to hear from you guys. So I want to hear some feedback. If you have any questions for future episodes, please find me on LinkedIn, send me a DM, a connection request, Yona Weiss, and I'd love to hear from you.